1918, the Irish poet William Butler Yeats moved into a house at 4 Broad Street in Oxford, England, which he'd call home for the next five years or so. Within that period, he clearly had a chance to explore the town and its environs, most notably the eponymous university, for he wrote in around 1921, quote, I wonder if anybody does anything at Oxford but dream and remember. The place is so beautiful. One almost expects the people to sing instead of speaking. It is all like an opera. Indeed, those who've been to Oxford University will attest that its majestic architecture speaks for itself, as well as the generations of students who have wandered its ancient stone halls for upwards of almost a thousand years. But what is the history of this unique and gorgeous establishment? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and gather up your books and hop on your bike, because we're going on a tour of the self-same university from its humble beginnings through the present, right now on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. In a place as prestigious and renowned as Oxford University, it has naturally been the setting for many a tale of intrigue, mystery, and even obsession. Most recently, Emerald Fennel's dark comedy Saltburn, starring Barry Keoghan and Jacob Elordi, is set in part against this stunning backdrop, and even writers like Dorothy L. Sayers and R.F. Kuang have used the university as the evocative locale for many a murder or revolutionary activity. But what is it about this particular place that has attracted both scholars and creative types alike? Indeed, there are a bevy of fields of study for which it's known throughout the world, but is there a kernel of truth to Yeats's words which opened this episode? As Julie Andrews put it in The Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. While an exact date of establishment for Oxford University isn't known, education in some form or other has been going on since 1096. To give you an idea, the Battle of Hastings, in which the Norman French conquered England, had only taken place just three decades prior in 1066. But exactly how and why a tiny hamlet in England became the setting for the pursuit of knowledge remains a mystery. In any case, the earliest rumblings of a university hit the ground running at that time, and, as we'll see, they'd show no signs of stopping in the ensuing couple centuries. Things really took off for Oxford in 1167, when the then-English monarch, Henry II, banned English students from attending the University of Paris following a dispute with Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time. Said dispute was, more or less, about the legal rights over the clergy. Henry II wished to exert his power over the church, to which Becket naturally emphatically refused. Becket, sadly, was ultimately assassinated at the hands of the king more specifically through some of his knights, in 1170, and at that time, the English students who had been recalled from studying in Paris were thus sent to Oxford, slowly transforming what had been a decidedly parochial institution before into a full-fledged university, the first of its kind in England, and the first in the entire Anglophone or English-speaking world. Today, guest lecturers are commonplace on university campuses, in which they expound on their knowledge and expertise on a given subject or topic. They often draw great crowds, not just from students in the same field or area of study, but any and all curious-minded folk. That being said, Oxford's first guest lecturer, if you will, paid the university a visit in 1188. His name was Gerald of Wales, and he was a renowned and greatly respected priest and historian in his own time, and continues to be to this very day. A member of the Norman court, as well as being a clerk to the king and two archbishops, he traveled extensively throughout England, Wales, Ireland, and even continental Europe, having visited Rome several times and even meeting the Pope himself. It was on these topics that he delivered his lecture to the assembled dons, that is, professors at Oxford, as well as to its student body. Today, several of his books are still read and studied for their invaluable insight and information, offering tantalizing glimpses into the lives and times of Europeans in the medieval period. Universities have come a long way from their decidedly insular origins in ancient and medieval times. Nowadays, it isn't uncommon to see students from far afield on campuses throughout the globe, though it's important to note that this is by no means a new practice. 
while there may well have been international students, so to speak, on Oxford's grounds prior to the late 12th century. Its first documented foreign scholar was a young man named Emmo of Friesland, who came from what's now the Netherlands across the North Sea to study theology. According to the university's own website, it was this event that, quote, set in motion Oxford's tradition of developing international scholarly links. While Oxford had unofficially garnered a reputation as a university for just over a century by the early 13th century, it was still yet to be formally classified as such on paper. That all changed in 1201, when an official post known as a Magister Scholarum, the title in Latin for the head of an ecclesiastical school, was created. This was a precursor to the current title of Chancellor of Oxford, and he oversaw all educational and scholarly pursuits. The post and its title became official 13 years later in 1214, and was the first step in making Oxford a recognized universitas, or educational corporation. Finally, in 1231, it was granted such a status. Oxford at last had come into its own as a proper university. Up to that point, campus housing, that oh-so-coveted living situation in universities throughout the world, didn't exist at Oxford. The ever-increasing student body found themselves further encroaching into the surrounding townspeople's living spaces and quarters, drawing ire and resentment. Such tensions reached a fever pitch in the mid-13th century, when rioting between town and gown, the Oxford townsfolk and the university students respectively, drew glaring attention to the fact that changes needed to be made. So it was that the first of Oxford's colleges were established between 1249 and 1264. Essentially endowed houses or primitive halls of residence, they were supervised by a master, the equivalent of an RA or rooming authority today, and were the first quote-unquote dormitories on campus. These colleges, Balliol, Merton, and University, are still in existence today and are the oldest of Oxford's student living quarters. In 1355, the university's reputation was further cemented when King Edward III granted it a royal charter for, quote, its invaluable contribution to learning. It's important to note that this honor didn't come out of nowhere. Leading up to this distinguished award, Oxford had already garnered the praises of generations of kings, popes, and learned men alike, all of whom were quick to comment on the university's prestige, as well as its curriculum, doctrine, and, on a superficial level, its beautiful ancient campus. In addition, those who had matriculated through the Oxford system contributed greatly to the building and thriving of the English state, according to King Edward III, and it was for this reason he said that it should continue to be lauded and supported. But it wasn't always rainbows and butterflies at Oxford. From its earliest days as a place of higher education, its grounds were home to lively debate and controversy, particularly in matters both religious and political. For example, John Wycliffe, a master of Balliol College in the 14th century, stirred the proverbial pot when he vied for an English translation of the Bible, much to the horror and chagrin of the Catholic Church. The papacy dictated that Latin was the language of faith and that anything beside that was quote-unquote vulgar and common. The idea of a Bible in English, therefore, was nothing short of blasphemous. Because of this, Wycliffe is often seen as one of the forerunners of the eventual Protestant Reformation, in which those who broke away from the Catholic Church and its dogma would go on to forge their own religious identities. To say that the Protestant Reformation had its earliest rumbling at Oxford would therefore not be completely out of line. As it turned out, Wycliffe would go on to translate the Bible anyway, with his edition being the first to appear in the English language. The university also served as the setting for many an instance of political intrigue. When King Henry VIII infamously divorced Catherine of Aragon in 1533, he not only forced the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, to annul the marriage, but he also forced the religious men at the university to accept it as well. Cranmer and others of the Anglican Church were eventually tried for heresy and burned at the stake near the campus. Later on, during the English Civil War of the early 17th century, in which Parliament wished to curb the monarchy's powers, Oxford maintained a royalist stance by siding with King Charles I. The monarch, in gratitude, even held a so-called counter-parliament at the university's convocation house, and while he was ultimately executed by beheading on January 30, 1648, the university maintained its stance until the very end. 
The end of the century saw its philosopher-in-residence, the great John Locke, being forced to flee the country to the Netherlands for supposed involvement in a treasonous plot to assassinate King Charles II, as well as the king's brother, James, the Duke of York. In short, the 16th and 17th centuries saw no shortage of excitement on the Oxford campus. Things would ultimately improve, however, with the coming of the Enlightenment. This period, marked by scientific discovery, religious revival, and philosophical discourse, saw many important historical figures pass through Oxford's portals throughout the 18th century. One of its full-time professors of geometry, and part-time astronomers at the time, a man you just might recognize by the name of Edmund Halley, predicted the passing of a comet that now bears his name. Spirituality, too, which had always played an integral role at Oxford, was revitalized during this period, when the sermons of brothers John and Charles Wesley led to such religious fervor that the Methodist Society and its successive church were established on the campus grounds, leading to an evangelical revival that would sweep throughout Britain and ultimately reach both continental Europe as well as American shores. But despite such scientific and spiritual developments as these, Oxford never completely forgot its religious, that's to say, Catholic, roots. In 1833, the establishment of the eponymous Oxford movement sought to re-establish those aspects of the Church of England that had been quote-unquote borrowed, read, adapted, by those of Catholicism. One of the group's leaders, a man named John Henry Newman, who'd been reared in the Anglican Church, even went as far as to convert to Catholicism in 1845, and would ultimately become a cardinal within the Church, and would posthumously be canonized as a saint in 2019. But while the Oxford movement failed to revive Catholicism on a large scale in Britain, as was one of its primary aims, or curbed the so-called liberalism of the Anglican Church at the time, it did, however, successfully retain Catholic elements in the Church of England's sacramental and liturgical practices, which are still in use today. Throughout this entire history I've presented on Oxford so far, you might have noticed something glaring, a severe lack of women or women's names. That's because up until 1878, Oxford was reserved solely for male students. That year, the first academic halls were built on campus specifically for female scholars. It wasn't until 1920, however, that women were, at long last, admitted as full members, and therefore allowed the same privileges and academic pursuits as their male cohorts. Despite this, they were still segregated. In 1986, a full 108 years after the university's initial admittance of women, the formerly traditionally male colleges changed their rules and regulations to include members of the opposite sex. Going even further, 2008 would mark the first time that all colleges, regardless of their long-standing traditions of being reserved for either men or women, accepted prospective students of both genders, and it's this final change that has stood all the way through to the present. From a parochial center for learning to a world-class university, Oxford has truly withstood the tests of time. Through wars, political intrigue, religious strife, and all manner of socio-political change, it has nevertheless remained true to its initial purpose, to provide quality education to those curious and studious minds intent on broadening their horizons. In the nearly 1,000 years since its earliest incarnation, it has grown into one of the most prestigious institutions for higher education, not just in Britain, but in all of Europe, and enjoys a reputation for greatness throughout the Anglophone world and beyond. Who knows, if they play their cards right, they just might endure another thousand years. Thanks for listening, and for joining me on this guided tour through the history of Oxford. I've admittedly not yet been myself, but it's a town and campus I look forward to seeing for myself one day. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support this podcast, please consider making a monthly contribution. Visit podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash history loves company. That's all one word and click the support button, which will take you to three monthly support plans that fit any budget or financial situation. Listening and sharing also help me in big ways. So please do so on all streaming platforms. Don't forget to join me again next Thursday for a look at the first civilization in Mesoamerica right here on the history loves company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Jester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.